listening to the Hope Unlimited Church podcast. We are so honored to connect with you, and we pray that you will be encouraged and inspired by this week's message. Preach this morning on the subject, the crucified God. The crucified God. All right. Hebrews chapter 10 and then Colossians chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 records these words. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year by year make perfect those who approach. Otherwise, would they not have ceased being offered since the worshipers cleansed once for all would no longer have any consciousness of their sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said this. Now, I want you to see what Jesus said. I want you to see what Jesus said, and I want you to see what this means for us. Moses told Israel there were five separate offerings in the Old Testament, each requiring shedding the blood of animals. Okay? And this is what Jesus, when Jesus comes along, this is what Jesus says. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But I thought Moses told us that's exactly what God wants. And Jesus comes along and redefines everything Moses said. When you read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he is routinely saying this. Moses said this, but I never said that. I'm telling you this. Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Watch. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. You've taken no pleasure. Not not a little bit of pleasure. No pleasure. Then I said, see God, I've come to do your will. Now flip over to Colossians chapter 1. I want to read uh, just one short passage to you. Colossians chapter 1. And I'm going to read verse number 15 to you. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, there's a a real popular term floating around out there right now. And that term is, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. That term is deconstruction. Deconstruction. And what that means is there's a movement going through the church, particularly the younger generation, where they are deconstructing what they think and believe about God. The problem is, for a lot of people, this is leading to having no faith in God. Deconstruction doesn't need to lead anybody to having no faith in God. It's it's one thing to lose confidence in a set of beliefs that you were handed. But it's another thing to lose complete faith in God. And that's our problem, right? We conflate what we've always been told to think and God as one and the same. And the reason this deconstruction is happening, I'll get into some of it a little bit later, but one of the reasons this is happening is because in the church, we have created a culture that encourages, in fact, demands that everybody deny questions. 
You not ever been in a service before, heard a sermon, and thought, I have some questions. You might have some questions right now. Heck, I've got my own set of questions. The term for these people now, the people that are losing their faith, typically in the South, people identify as evangelical. And now the, the, the buzzword is exvangelical. They're no longer, you see what they did there? Exvangelical, okay. There was a poll that came out recently. Gallup just released a poll that said, for the first time, and perhaps even America's history, less than half of the United States population identifies as being members of a church somewhere. 20 years ago, 67% of the American population claimed to be a member of a church. Now it is 47%, and the world is freaking out. The Christian world is freaking out. We know what this means, right? It's Satan. Because when we don't have good explanations for something, it has to be Satan. Has to be. When good things happen and we can't explain them, it was God. When bad things happen and we can't explain them, it was the devil. Pretty simple. So why are people losing, why are people deconstructing who they think God is? A lot of times when I talk to people and they say, well, I don't believe in God. My first reaction is, well, which God is it that you don't believe in? Because chances are, I don't believe in that God either. Because we have taught, I want you to hear me, and I'm going to explain this, I'm going to go deep into this. We have taught, we have promoted, we have cast a vision of who God is. That is completely unworthy of God. We have cast, we have created a deformed vision of who God is and then cannot for the life of us figure out why people won't buy into it. And so when they don't buy into this perverse vision of God that we created, we then use tactics of fear and intimidation to get them to bow down to a God that doesn't even exist. Because the God that I grew up listening to preached is not the God of the Bible. Can I give you an example? There was a, there was a, there was a sermon preached in the 18th, 18th century, I believe it was, by one of the greatest revivalists in American history. A man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And the name of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Y'all read that sermon? If you haven't, you should. Just cuddle up with it tonight before you start your week. Get some hot cocoa. Turn the fire on if it's a little nippy outside. Put the golden retriever at the foot of the mantle and then just cuddle up with Jonathan Edwards' sermon. It's only about 10 pages. It won't take you that long. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached this on a Sunday morning to his church. From what I understand, his church was a difficult bunch of people. My church isn't, thank God, but his church was a a difficult bunch of people. So my heart goes out to him in some respects. But I I want you to hear this vision of God that Edwards cast. You ready? You're not, but I'm gonna give it to you anyway. The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed up for the present. It's it's a raging river behind a dam. 
They increase more and more and they rise higher and higher until an outlet is given. And the longer the dam is stopped, the more rapid and mighty its course when once it is let loose. And what you don't realize yet is that wrath is aimed at you. It's true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed yet. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing. Why you sit there not doing anything? Your guilt is increasing. And you are every day treasuring up more wrath. Y'all excited yet? It's a great way to start Sunday morning. The waters, are, the waters of God's wrath are continually rising and growing more and more mighty. And there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and pressed to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness of the wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. It gets way worse. Sit right there. The bow. Are y'all ready? No, you're not. That's the, that's the right response. No, I'm just. The bow of God's wrath. Now, do I believe in the wrath of God? Yes. Yes. Do I believe in the judgment of God? Yes. So don't even start that. The bow of God's wrath is bent. And the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart. And strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God. Without promise or obligation at all. That keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. that sound right I'm gonna keep going this is the best line you ready for the best line you're not but all right here you go the God that holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire that God abhors you Now, you've never heard it preached in such vivid terms because Jonathan Edwards was just a smart guy. And this is the way the Puritans wrote. You've never heard this version of God preached in such vivid terms, but you have heard this vision of God. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one, I hope, and I've got my my 11-year-old daughter in here. She's like, what's happening? (laughs) The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, he abhors you and he is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. 
You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. 10,000 times worse than a rattlesnake. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel could offend his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. That you were suffered to awake again this, in this, this world this morning after you close your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning. But that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you haven't gone to hell since you've sat here in the house of God. Provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. It's going to get better. Everybody take a breath. There is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you don't this very moment drop down to hell. Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned that are already in hell. You hang on by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder and you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself nothing to keep off the flames of wrath nothing of your own nothing that you have ever done nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment y'all had enough yet? I can keep going let's see here let's see here let me keep going let me read you one more can I read you one more? we'd prefer you didn't but you're going to anyway so Why ask? Here we go. The wrath of God burns against you. Your damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive you. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over you, and the pit has opened her mouth up underneath you. And we're scratching our heads, figuring out why people don't buy in to this vision of God. Again, you did not hear it in that language, but you have heard that. I grew up hearing that. That God killed Jesus to save us from himself. You have this vision in the Old Testament, right? Because we don't know how to properly read the Old Testament at all. You have this Old Testament, these Old Testament vision where God has to kill something. He is bound by some law outside of himself that he has to have bloodshed. And so they killed millions and millions of animals so that God would be appeased. Now, what if I told you today that there is a religion in Israel That every morning and every evening, they offer a sacrifice of golden retrievers because God required it. What would you say to that? 
Y'all all look very traumatized at this point. <laughs> you don't know what to say, do you? That there is, a, there is a movement happening where their God is demanding the crucifixion of animals for his own sake. And then the way we preach the cross in Jesus, now this God is no longer requiring the sacrifice of animals. Now he is requiring a child sacrifice. And his name is Jesus. Because he's got to kill somebody. This is the vision that we've preached. This has corrupted us in our most basic humanity. This has corrupted our understanding of who God is. We project all of our most wicked impulses onto God and then say that is the God of the Bible. You with me? It would be equivalent to when you read the story of the prodigal son, everybody loves the story of the prodigal son, everybody loves that story. It would be equivalent to when the son came home, the father embraces the son, oh, thank God you're finally back. Hang on one second. And then he walks out to his servant's quarters and has to beat a servant because somebody's got to be beat because he's just that unhinged. And in order for me to receive you back home, I got to take this out on somebody. This is the vision of God that we've preached. And so God was going to have to take it out on you you wicked, sinful, just hot mess of a person. That's my 21st century translation of Jonathan Edwards' sermon. And so right before God took it out on you, boom, Jesus enters in, and thanks be to God, he has finally absorbed all of God's angry outrage. And now when God looks at us, he looks at us with peace because he got that off his chest. That is not who God is. That is who we are, and we've called it God. That is not holiness. Whenever you start talking about this, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. They were saying, so you don't believe that, and I'm going to talk about Jesus and what that meant here. You don't believe that God killed Jesus. I said, no. No. Do I believe Jesus died and rose from the dead? Of course. Of course I do. Do I believe God killed him? No. They said, why not? I don't know, because God's not a psycho. They said, well, look, he's also holy. I said, I know, and he calls me to be holy. So at what point do I become so much like him? I get to start killing people. Our God is not the crucifier. Our God is the crucified We, we serve a God. Listen, this is one of the things that we have to learn about God. God is humble. God is the infinite expression of everything he requires us to be. If God calls us to be humble, it's because he is infinite humility. God is so humble, in fact, that when he launched his new creation project, he tells the people of Israel, he says, do not make an image to me. 
Every other God in the ancient world would erect many images to their gods. And God speaks and says, I don't want you to make an image of me because I've already made an image of myself and that image is you. Jesus reveals to us who God is. Jesus is who God is. You cannot divorce your revelation of God from who you see in Jesus. And that is most fully demonstrated at the crucifixion. Our God is the God that suffers for us, not inflicts the suffering upon us. That's who God is. Are you hearing what I'm saying? All, I don't know why we preach it this way. We've always preached the gospel with using language as though you are a criminal standing in a courtroom and the New Testament never talks about it that way. The New Testament does not talk about you as a criminal. You were just born guilty. You were just born guilty, had nothing to do with it. You you're just guilty without your consent, and now God's going to kill you. The New Testament never talks about it in that way. The New Testament does not call you a criminal in a courtroom. The New Testament calls us slaves in the household of death, but Jesus defeated death for us. That's what the ransom was. Jesus said, I did not come to be ministered to, but to minister and to give my life as a ransom for many. But that ransom that he paid was not paid to God. Because God was not holding us hostage. Death was holding us hostage. And Jesus paid the penalty to death. That's who God is. Are you hearing what I'm saying? We have to. God is the crucified Never the crucifier. God is not the blood shedder. God is the one who gives his own blood to be shed. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You know, and I've, I've preached this before, but I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to do a whole series on this coming up. But I'll give you a little, little, little nugget. You have this Old Testament vision. And again... The, the Old Testament is inspired by God. It is God's word to us. Yes. We agree. Is that right? We agree? Yes. The Old Testament is not a blog that was written two weeks ago. It was written over 4,000 years ago in a completely different part of the world with a completely different culture and understanding and, and way of writing, completely different language. I don't even mean Hebrew. All right. Completely different language. Completely different context. The problem is not what the Old Testament says. The problem is what we say the Old Testament says. The problem is not with the Old Testament. The problem is with how we read the Old Testament. As somebody living in Knoxville in 2021, and we read it like a tweet. Right? So in, in the theological world, that Old Testament vision of God that we see, that we're told is there, where God tells Joshua, I want you to go in to Canaan. I want you to murder everybody. I want you to murder everybody. I had a professor of mine tell me a story one time. There's a story in the Bible about a man named Phineas. If you've never read this story, you should read it. Right after you get done reading Jonathan Edwards' sermon this afternoon, turn over and read Phineas. Make, make it for a, a great 
just a great way to tie up the loose end of the weekend. This is what happens with Phineas. Phineas is zealous for the tabernacle. He is zealous to protect God's presence in the tabernacle. He goes to the tabernacle. There's a man and a woman having sex at the door of the tabernacle. Phineas goes and takes a spear, drives it through the back of the man and the woman. You should read this in your Bible. Your Bible and mine. And history tells us that he picks them both up because he must have been hitting that P90X to pick two people up on the spear and walks them around the camp and everybody celebrates because he was so passionate about the presence in the house of God. Professor told me this story and he said he had a man in his church that read this story. And after he read the story, he came back and he says, I feel like God has told me to kill our pastor. That's the right reaction. Some of y'all didn't say that. Some of y'all were like, meh. Who are we to judge? I was expecting a gasp, but there wasn't one. A little concerning. Who are we to say that God didn't tell him that? Now, did God tell him that? Of course not. But he read a story in the Old Testament. And because he didn't know how to read that story, he thought God told him the same thing. That vision of God in the world of theology, they call him the warrior God who tells Saul, I want you to go in and murder all the men, the women, and the children. And we will read that story and not even bat an eye. Just keep reading, sipping our coffee, kill all the men, women, and children. Oh, okay. Saul didn't kill them all. Disobedient. (laughs) I want you to think about that. And then this is the depth of our explanation. This is the only way we know how to explain that. This is what people tell me all the time. Well, you know, in the New Testament... God changed his ways. You just made that answer up, didn't you? New Testament, God changed his ways. Because in Jesus, we don't see go kill your enemies. We see if they smite you on one cheek, give them the other. We say if your enemy, if your enemy wants your shirt, give him your jacket. And if he wants you to walk one mile, go with him too and bless him. And, do not, and if they persecute you, you pray for them. That's the vision that we see now in Jesus. He is completely contrary to this warrior God that we have read in the Old Testament. So what do we make of that tension? You're supposed to read those stories and think, now wait a second. What? Because this God is not what I see in Jesus. And we believe that. We're content to believe that. That God the Father and God the Son are different people. And God the Son is the one that keeps God the Father calmed down. And so now we have this genocidal God in the Old Testament. And now we have Jesus. Dodged a bullet, right? Thank God for Jesus. But then... 
we have another vision of the warrior God in the book of Revelation. We love this book. We love that U.S. Marine Navy SEAL Jesus. We love it. I'm going to bring some of this artwork in one day. I'm going to put it on the screen. There's all these pictures going around of Jesus with those just bullets and machine guns preparing for the battle of Armageddon. Because the Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is not the same Jesus in the book of Revelation, evidently. And we don't know how to make sense of those things. And Paul makes it very, very clear for us. Are you listening? He says, who you see in Jesus, that is who God is. He said in Hebrews that Jesus is the express image of the Father. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen him. Right? Paul even said that when we read the Old Testament apart from Jesus, we read it with a veil over our eyes. That we're not seeing God clearly if we read those stories disconnected from and divorced from what we see in Jesus. And what do we know about Jesus? That he is the crucified. Never the crucifier. The cross is not God. The cross is not Jesus saving us from God. The cross is Jesus revealing God as our Savior. God did not reconcile himself to us because God was not alienated from us. God reconciled us back to himself. The cross, when Jesus died, that didn't, that, he did not do that so God would change his mind toward us. He died so it would change our minds toward God. The, the, the cross is not what God did to Jesus so he could forgive us. The cross is what God endured in Jesus as he forgave us. He is the crucified, never the crucifier. Why, why, why is this important? Number one, because we have this vision of God where you are, where there is condemnation constantly floating over your head, judgment constantly floating over your head. The very moment that you make a mistake or have a bad day or do something wrong, that like Jonathan Edwards said, you're hanging on by a thread and the flames of hell are licking at the thread. Some of us still live that way. Some of us still live under that vision of God. That's the dangerous thing about condemnation. It makes you run away from a God that you should be running toward when you have a problem, not running away from when you have a problem. If we would see God as the... Do you know, and I've said this to you before, but I'm going to get it in our bones as much as I have to. Do you know how much evil has been inflicted on humanity? Because of the ways that we have read the Bible and what we've used the Bible to justify. Do you know how much evil? Do you know how much wickedness? We used the Bible, the New Testament, to justify slavery and owning other humans. We used it for that. And now when you ask Christians about it, they don't have an answer. It's just like, well, it's a cultural thing. What? 
we've used the Bible to subjugate women. We still use, denominations still use the Bible to subjugate women. I had some friends that were part of a particular denomination when I was growing up, and I grew up, we grew up fighting all the time, debating all the time. The Bible. Because if you were a woman in their church, you were not allowed to speak. You were not allowed to say amen. You were allowed to teach Sunday school. Who remembers Sunday school? Shout out for Sunday school. You were allowed to teach Sunday school, but only if there were young men in the Sunday school class that were younger than you. And if you were 21 and there was a young man that was 22, doesn't even matter if he was unsaved, you were not allowed to teach him. You know why? Because that's what the Bible says. Except that's not what the Bible says. It's what we said the Bible says. We read these stories. We've used these stories to murder and pillage and overtake and conquer. We've used the Bible for that. No wonder people are deconstructed. Because the only, th- only explanation the church will give you is, well, his ways are higher than our ways. And when you're tossed to and fro, and again, I'm going, I'm going to spend a lot of time in a series talking about the Old Testament. All right? But when you're tossed to and fro, how do, you, how do you make sense of all of this stuff? How do you make sense of what Moses said? How do you make sense of what Elijah said? How do you make sense of what Revelation said? How do you make sense of what? Then you have Jesus. What do you make, how do you make sense of all this? You have to have a way to center what you're reading. Where's my anchor? Where do I land? Where do I know I can run to when I'm confused and I have questions and I don't have good explanations? Where can I run to and I know this to be true? We know this to be true, that God is who he is revealed in Jesus. And in Jesus, he is the crucified one, never the crucifier. He is the one having violence done to him, not the one doing violence in return. That is who our God is. It's beautiful, isn't it? He's the crucified. He's the one that puts himself on the cross, not putting anybody else on it. He's the one that while you were still his enemy, he died for you and for me. He's not the one that said, we'll be reconciled, but you got to apologize first. He said, if you never apologize, I'm still going to lay down my life for you. Our God is the crucified, never the crucifier. Our God is not the killer. Our God is the one that allows himself to die for us because that's the God we see in Jesus. Any vision of God that somebody promotes to you that is not viewed in Jesus That is not who God is. And I I want to make that statement as definitively and as sharply as I possibly can. Any vision of God that you do not see in Jesus is not the vision of the God of the Bible. You hear me? Any vision of God 
that allows you to exclude other people because of what they're going through or what their issues are. When Jesus would allow them at his table, any vision of God that gives you license to do that, that is not who God is. Any vision of God that would cause you to subjugate women for any reason, that is not who God is because Jesus never did that. Jesus released women. He did not subjugate them. He empowered them. He did not subjugate them. He released them into who they were. He did not subjugate them. And I don't care what Bible verse you have. If it's contrary to Jesus, that is not what the Bible is saying. God is. This is going to be a startling revelation to you. You ready? You can, you can, you can tweet this. God is like Jesus. The Jesus that would allow himself to be mistreated and never vindicate himself. The Jesus that would lay down his life. The Jesus that said, everybody's welcomed at my table. The Jesus that said, when there's sin going on in your life, I don't have a stone to throw. And you made a mistake. I don't have a stone to throw. And not only do I not have a stone to throw, I will protect you from everybody that does have a stone to throw. That's who Jesus is. I told you this last week. At some point I told you this. That when we say things about God. And we claim that they are true. If they are not also good. And beautiful. Then they are not true. Because God is infinite beauty. He is infinite goodness. And he is infinite truth. And when we make claims about him that are not beautiful but are ugly and create an ugly Christianity, that is not who God is. Why is this important? Because if we sink, if we allow this to transform us, it will completely transform how we treat our neighbors. It'll completely transform how we treat our neighbors. You will be amazed at how judgmental you are not. Once you learn that God's not judging you in that way either. You secretly treat others the way you believe God is treating you. I can watch how you think about God the way you treat others. I can watch how you think about God the way you treat the waitress at the restaurant. I can watch how you think God treats you by how you treat people you don't think you need. How you treat people that are beneath you. It's like Pastor Cole said earlier, giving money to that homeless person. Well, I grew up my whole, well, they're going to use it for drugs. I'm not, I, I'm not just giving money to them because they need it. I'm giving money to them because I need to give it to them. Because it's good for my soul. Jesus is the crucified. Let me tell you another story and I'll shut up. I have no minutes left. A great theologian wrote an article sometime back in an online theology journal. And he went to, I, I want you to, sh- I want to show you just how perverse and corrupt we can be, we can be in the name of God. If you've never been to Israel, this might not make much sense to you. He went to Israel and he stood on Mount Tabor, which is where everybody agrees that the Sermon on the Mount was preached. You know what? As a matter of fact, stand up. I'm, I'm going to conclude with this.
this theologian went and he stood on Mount Tabor, which is where everybody believes. Of course, in Israel, they all say that, you know, we believe this is where Jesus, they're like nine places. And they got gift shops. Every one of them. We believe this is where Jesus died here by the cross. He's standing on the, on the mountain where Jesus preached the Beatitudes. Where Jesus preached, love your enemies and do good to them. He's standing on this mountain. And he looks out. I might have already told you this story. I don't know. I told somebody this story. If I've told you this story, just act like you never heard it. Just be amazed. Bring that down just a bit, Chancellor. He's staying on this mountain, and he sees when you stand in Israel, it's the hub of it's the hub of three world religions: Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. If you Google Israel, you'll see the big dome with the golden top. It's the dome of the rock. That's an Islamic mosque. Israel is is charted off. It is zoned off. The Muslims live here, and the Jewish people live here, and. Christians just blow through and do their thing and blow out. And he's standing on this mountain where Jesus preached this sermon about suffering for the world and about laying down your life and about when your enemy strikes you, give him your other one. Don't respond in kind because violence will not save the world. Beauty will save the world. He's standing there. And he sees the dome of the rock. And he sees these other Christian sites. And this was his takeaway. This was his takeaway. He writes this in the journal. And this is not a political statement. I don't, 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 don't I ain't got time for that. I had a long weekend. I don't want to hear that. This is his takeaway. The United States must begin to drop bombs on Muslim countries. Because if we don't, they're going to destroy our Christian holy sites in Israel. Think about the cognitive dissonance there. You were standing on the very mountain where Jesus renounced violence and bloodshed. And you're calling for violence and bloodshed. Because what we never seem to learn from Jesus is he did not conquer the world through power. He did not overthrow through violence. I know that's the God we want, but that's not the God that we get. I know you want that U.S. military Jesus. I know we want that, but you will not find that in the Bible. who in the face of violence suffers it, absorbs it. And while we are crying, crucify him, he is crying, Father, forgive them. That's beautiful. That humility and love and suffering on behalf of another that 
is what saves the world. That's what it means for Jesus to be the crucified. Dying on the cross was not a power move. Before Jesus showed up, if, if, you, if, you would, if you read the history between the Old and the New Testament, before Jesus showed up, there were numerous Jewish revolts where they were going to overthrow Rome by the power of the sword because this is not God's will for us, and it wasn't. Every year at Passover, when everybody would migrate to Jerusalem for Passover, Rome would ramp up their security because they knew somebody is going to set it off and try to crumble the empire through violence and power. And Jesus came in the completely opposite spirit. And he said, I am not the crucifier. I'm the crucified. I'm the one that lays down my life. And then he calls us to follow him. Jesus did not die on the cross so you would not have to. Jesus died on the cross to show you how. listening to me? That's a different way of thinking, isn't it? I'm going to preach a series coming up soon. I'm going to to entitle it, Beauty Will Save the World. Because this corrupt Christianity that we've preached will not do anything but corrupt the world even further. Our God is the crucified, never the crucifier. And I love Jonathan Edwards and thank God for him. But you're not a spider or a loathsome insect being dangled. Do I believe in hell? Of course. Christian tradition has always affirmed the doctrine of hell. Yes, we believe in hell. But God's not dangling you over the flame. And just because he's decided not to pitch you in yet is why you're not there. That's corrupt. Our God is not the crucifier. He's the crucifier. So much so that he went to hell for us. Jesus died so even the dead wouldn't have to be alone. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to give, please visit hopeunlimited.church slash give. To stay connected, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hope Unlimited Church.